0: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombascom acast and use code
2: ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: Thank you for listening to this Last Blast podcast by the Intercooler. Now, before we get started, I just want to take a moment to thank Footman James for sponsoring Last Blast. As you know, at the Intercooler, we only partner with like-minded organisations, with companies that we think really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast. Footman James fit into that perfectly. I know this because when talking to them before making this recording, they said to me, please don't talk about car insurance, which I think says a lot. So instead, I'm just going to give you a couple of reasons why Footman James is different to other car insurance companies. Coffee and Chrome, for one thing, that's Footman James' regular car meat. It's free to attend once you're registered and it's where hundreds if not a thousand car enthusiasts get together with their classics to enjoy and share their passion for cars. Footman James also publishes its indicator report. It's a thorough analysis and a detailed report into the state of classic car ownership in this country. The point is to promote and safeguard the future of classic cars in the UK. So there you go, two good reasons why Footman James is different to other car insurance companies. So, thank you, Footman James. Go and visit footmanjames.co.uk. You're listening to the Last Blast podcast by The Intercooler. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. It's a last blast interview with Professor Gordon Murray, um, who really doesn't need any introduction, does he? Let's just run through it quickly, though. One of the great Formula One designers. Um, His cars have won multiple world championships, many, many races, um, and he's built cars for the likes of Nelson Piquet, Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost. He had an extraordinary 20-year career in F1. Um, And then (laughs) creator of the McLaren F1, Um, one one of the great performance cars maybe the greatest ever it's up there isn't it Um, and nowadays through Gordon Murray Automotive he is creating more extraordinary hypercars with the likes of the T50 and the T33 Um, I mean his perspective is always fascinating hearing his story is always interesting. Um, for those of you who don't know, perhaps you haven't listened to a Last Blast podcast before, but it's a, it's a format. Um, it's an interview format. And we find fascinating guests from the world of cars and ask them to tell us what the six cars that have meant most to them are. Um, and we also talk about their life and work. And at the end of the interview, they tell us which of those six cars they would choose to take their last blast in their final drive um it's a it's a fascinating interview as any interview with gordon murray is um maybe you are literally driving home for christmas while listening to this um or perhaps it kills an hour and a half between christmas and new year in that the sort of lost week between christmas and new year um this one is freely available to everybody um to listen to enjoy it it's our christmas gift to all of you um Have a great Christmas and we'll be back with more Last Blast podcasts in the new year. Ladies and
2: gentlemen, welcome to a very special Last Blast podcast. I'm here today with Professor Gordon Murray, uh, who has very kindly agreed to sit down with me um, and tell you not only all about his career, but as we do with Last Blast, the six cars that are the ones that mean the most to you or the greatest cars. And it doesn't matter with this whether these are cars people have owned or driven or raced. They could just be cars that were on bedroom walls so Gordon welcome thank you very much for agreeing to do this good to be here um the first thing we do with this um, and it's the same with everyone who comes on this podcast is I ask you three questions your first car your first crash and your first race so can we start what was your first car and by first car that doesn't mean necessarily the first car you owned or the first car you drove it's whatever what you consider to be your first car
1: Right, well, that's an easy one, because I grew up in uh, South Africa, and you had to be 18 then to get a car license. At 16, you could ride a moped, a 50cc bike, and I had a a little 10 pounds worth of Maserati for two years. But as soon as I was approaching 18, of course, I I booked my test, and I was desperate to have a car, and I, I lusted after a Healy Sprite yeah but they 'd only come out, and this would have been what thousand nine hundred and sixty two or something like that and they, they came out in fifty eight so even the second hand ones were still three hundred quid yeah and my dad looked at me and said, If you think i 'm spending six hundred pounds on a, on an Austin Healy sprite, you know I think he also thought probably about the safety, yes. um, and I ended up with a fifty six Hillman minx <laughs> <laughs> which was. Which was uh, quite a letdown. But, yes. But it, I mean, you know, you remember the freedom of having a motor car was fantastic. Yeah, that's right the thing, there. isn't it? It's freedom, and, and, isn't it? And, you know, very soon I took the bumpers off and uh, painted a stripe down the side and put a, a bigger exhaust tailpipe on. Didn't change the exhaust because I couldn't afford anything. Yeah. And what I did do, it had a column change. So I, I went down to the breakers yard and bought a Sunbeam Rapier floor change, which fit to the same gearbox. Got some tin snips and cut a hole in the tunnel and bolted that <laughs> on the top of the gearbox so I had a floor change. Um, it took the hubcaps off, the usual stuff. You yeah. know. It, th- those are the only things I could really afford to do. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my Sprite didn't materialise but, yeah. but I had so much fun in that car and my mates, I used to be a lunatic driving it, you know, and my, yeah. my mates, when it rained in Durban, the, the, the diesel and stuff floated to the top. It was really slippery. Yeah. And whenever whenever it rained, my mates would phone me up and say, can we go for a ride in the Hillman? You know, we'd take it out and drift it all over the place and bounce off the curbs (laughs) and things. So I had a lot of fun in that car. Yeah. But was it the first car you crashed or was
2: that something else? Yes,
1: The fun only lasted two months. Ah. And I was going out to a beach party uh, with a friend of mine who didn't have a car, Glenn Durrant. And uh, we were going out to a beach party in Durban North, which was quite a drive, probably 10, 12 miles away and the north side up the north coast and there was a there was a big road called Umganey Road and aptly named Cemetery Bend, which was quite a fun, fast fast bend. <laughs> cemetery Bend. It was called Cemetery Bend, yeah. I think because there must be I must look on a map, I think there must be a cemetery nearby. Anyway it's called Cemetery Bend. And uh, I went into this just way too quick, you know. It was probably it was it was a little bit wet. And it was probably a 60 mile an hour corner maximum uh, with the hillman sliding a bit. And I must have gone in at about 70 and I lost it. And there was a a single decker bus coming the other way and I hit the bus absolutely head on, but with with the mink sideways and the car folded in half and went over the top of the bus and still had enough energy to go across the other side of the road and demolish a brick column in front of a shop, and I—I um, I mean, it, 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 the the roof was down below the back of the seat, where it a tent behind you it, behind well, the seat—it had like penknife it down in itself, got halfway out of the windscreen. So I would missed it when the roof collapsed, and I was stuck in the car. So the fire brigade had to come and uh, and chop us out. And Glen, I looked across at Glen and. I I had gone, my arm had gone through the steering wheel and I'd gone halfway through the windscreen, so I was in a bit of a mess. I cracked my skull and yeah. um, did ribs and f- face was a mess and stuff and my hand was a mess. I looked across at Glenn, because I was still conscious, and uh, all I could see was his whole face was covered in blood, but all it was is he'd lost an eyelid. He didn't, have, he didn't have any other injuries. I think it was the glass or something. Right. Um, so they cut us out, and they, and they took us in the ambulance. Of course, we were in shock. Yeah. And took us in the ambulance, and I, I actually... I heard one of the guys say to the other... There's two guys in the back of the ambulance, and one guy said, that chap's all right, but I think this one might be a goner. And I, that one being you. Yeah, and that, that galvanised me, actually. I thought, I'm not dying in the ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they went to hospital and, and patched me up and everything, and, of course, the car was written off. Yeah. And when I got fit again, my dad bought me another Hillman Minx. <laughs> so God, But if I'd been in the Sprite, I wouldn't be here. I mean, really, that accident in the Sprite—you know—would have been all over. Blimey.
2: Okay. Um, first race. I mean, because you—am I right in saying that you originally thought that racing
1: was going to be what you wanted to do? Oh, uh, from six years old, I didn't yeah. ever want to do anything else. I grew up in a a racing family there wasn't a month ago, went by before be without us going to you know speedway or or hill climb or, Yeah. they had around the houses track in durban or like a poor man's monaco you know <laughs> along the beachfront with eras and homemade mm. specials and things yeah and um in that was like 51 50 51 52 Gosh. um so i just i never wanted to be anything but i just uh, speed and anything on a bike on a push yeah. bike yeah. or anything you know so, um, yeah, when I got to sort of towards racing eight, 18 again, I, the only way for me, I had no money, the only way for me was to design and build my own car and I built what was T1, you know, the IGM Ford. Yeah. And I, I had it from memory at late 66, it was just finished at the end of 66 and I, I entered for the 67 Sports Car, National Sports Car Series and I raced it in 67 and 68, but I think... I think I did a what they called a sprint somewhere mm-hmm. and I did a minor hill climb but my first race proper race was yeah. at Roy Hesker circuit in the beginning of 67 Easter 67 And can you remember that feeling of lining up for uh, the first oh, time Absolutely yeah I mean it's uh, definitely it's what I've been waiting for for ages yeah you know? Um, But I I was a very nervous starter. As soon as you got round the first couple of corners, all the nerves disappeared. But I can remember not even being able to hold the clutch in because my foot was shaking so much with the flag up. I know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) But as soon as you got going, all that just just went away, you know. Um, But it was so exciting, really, to think, you know, you're sitting in 18 years old and you're sitting in your own car, or 19, I think I was by then, sitting in your own motor car. You know on the start of, start of a race, but unfortunately that race only lasted two laps as well because it was um it was they didn't have enough sports cars that wasn't a national sports car race that was just a local club yeah, yeah yeah club race, and when they didn't have enough sports cars, they used to throw in hot saloons and everything into the same race so we had simca uh gordinis uh, Renault gordinis Simca yeah. thousand simca eleven hundreds i think they were. We had uh, a couple of Mini Cooper S's and things like that, and we got going on the first. I had made a bit of a slow start, and a couple of Cooper S's came past me because I outqualified them. Yeah, and I was behind this one. It was a friend of mine, actually, one in particular. And there is a long straight up Maritzburg with a kink called Henry's Knee, and then there is Quarry Curve at the bottom. And in those days. There was no, there was a bit of bar wire fencing. There was no runoff. There was stones and trees and logs and, yeah. and people sitting on car bonnets watching. There yeah. was just no safety at all. And on the second lap, I, I, I tucked in behind him for the first lap. And then on the second lap, I thought I've got to be quicker on the straight. And I waited till the braking point, you know, and unknown to me, he left his braking later because he thought I was going to pass. Yeah. And by the time he braked and, and went into the corner, I was, I was still doing about 90 <laughs> miles an hour. And it was a 40-mile-an-hour bend. Yeah. So I went straight off and um, knocked one of the front corners off the car and uh, smacked the steering wheel and bit through my tongue. And, uh, <laughs> and it, was, it was that spectacular that it was on the front page of the newspaper the next, uh, next day. I've still got the cutting somewhere somebody got a photograph of it yeah of yeah. me crashing through the bush you know would you have
2: had belts in the car then
1: well i did put belts in the car but they were uncomfortable on my neck so i didn't wear them oh okay yeah gosh so i hit the steering wheel yeah and you raced in south africa for a couple of years two two seasons
2: two yeah, seasons 67 and 68 um, and, and what made you stop and sort of seek a career? I just thought,
1: because by then I'd had to do, I, I really, I studied engine design yeah. at college. I didn't go to university, I did a technical college. I did a five, five-year five apprenticeship with an engineering company with a day release to go to college and two nights a week. So you did a three-year university syllabus, but over five years. Yeah. And I did thermodynamics and machine design. I just loved engines, you know. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, my final year um, project was designing an engine. Um, what did you design? It was a station... Well, they told you it was yeah. it had to be a three-horsepower stationary engine. Okay. But you had to design camshafts and yeah. valves and, and detail them all, you know, yeah. Yeah, pages and pages. It took eight months to do that. Anyway, so... Um, and when you say design, did you actually have to physically build it as well? No. no you just, just had, had to, to come to up with like, yeah. it. Yeah. So I used a... I used a one hundred and five E Anglia as a base, yeah. but I gas flowed the cylinder head myself. I designed my own camshaft. I made my own pistons to get it up to eleven hundred, which was class A sports cars. Yeah. So I had a, I had a ball designing the the engine and the, and the car. Yeah. So after two years, I thought I got so much into the because of that, I got so much into the design as well as the driving. I thought, well, hold on a minute. I think I could, you know, design. Racing cars yeah. and cars. Brilliant. And I thought, well, the other, the other 50% of my life was music. So it was either speed or music. Yeah. And uh, in 69, uh, the UK was the centre of the universe for both. You know, Can you imagine you know, Hendrix everything. and everything? Yeah. Um, so I decided that I'd just sell everything I had. And the cheapest ticket I could find was a, was a, a cargo, a converted cargo boat which was £130, to do this 7,000-mile trip. And um, I didn't know anybody over here. I'd been writing to Lotus, that's right, I wrote to Colin Chapman. Yeah. Got on a boat, sold everything I had, got on a boat, racing car and everything, and came over here. Okay, this would be a very good
2: time to have your, the first of your six choices.
1: Of the cars, well, that has to be the 60s Lotus Elan, yeah. because I was a total Chapman fan yeah. when I was a teenager. And I, liked, I lo- just loved everything he did, you know, racing cars and, and the road cars. And the Elan was just... I, never, I was never into E-types or mm. anything like that, Aston Martins, you know. It was just... When the Elan came out, I just thought, wow, you know, the styling, the size, the concept of the, you know, the strut rear suspension. It's clever, wasn't it? And the backbone chassis. Yeah. And that little twin cam. I mean, it might just be a, a, a Monday... Cylinder head on a on a Ford block, but my goodness, that's got character. That little yeah. twin cam. I've got I've got that twin cam now and I think four different cars, <laughs> and uh, in various stages of tune. Uh, and it's just a gorgeous little engine. The combination between revs and and torque, yeah, uh, and and the exhaust and the induction sound. It, it, just perfect little engine. And and you have a couple of Alans yourself. I've got two Alans and a twin cam Europa. Yeah, and I've got the twin cam in. Oh, Lotus 23B. Yeah. yeah. So when I was in South Africa, when the Elan came out, I, I used to get the magazines, uh, Autocar, Motor and Autosport. It wasn't Autocar, Motor. It was called something else in those days. Anyway, um, but they used to come by ship, so it took a month. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can remember, as long as I live, I'll remember that I, I opened the the magazine when the Elan was launched in 63 or 64. And I just thought, wow. You know, just one day, I've got to own one of those. Yeah, one day.
2: And, so, and were you already obsessed with the concept of lightweight? Oh, absolutely. By then,
1: oh yeah. I mean, when I built my car, I mean it. it looks like a. It's not a Lotus Seven because the frame's very different. It's got yeah. it's got bonded stress panels for a start. But I managed to get eighty kilos out of a Lotus Seven, which is going some. You know, yeah. already just on that car, I'm yeah. going thinner gauge and and these stress panels. And I lightened the flywheel, the engine, the gearbox, I lightened everything. So as soon as I got to England, even though I didn't have a job, and in those days, uh, South Africa wasn't, um, we'd just gone to a republic. Yeah. So we weren't Commonwealth anymore. So you, you had to have either a work permit or you had to have cash. And I'd, with everything I'd sold, including the racing car, I had £1,000 cash. So what do I do? I spent 840 of it on a second-hand load of <laughs> No job. <laughs> which, which proceeded to fall to pieces. Yeah. I bought it from a guy called Ian Smith who worked for the BBC in Shepherd's Bush and I think he'd put it together himself from a kit and yeah. it just kept, pieces just kept dropping off it, you know, the alternator fell off on the, on the M4, um, the degenerator, the I mean, fell off on the M4, the starter motor fell off and then the, then the block the block and gearbox separated on the M4 and pulled the spline out of the back of the crank. Um, oh, great. Bits like that. And then the chassis broke in half, and, but that was me jumping. Ah, uh, um, okay. But, so that's fair enough. Anyway, um, I just I just adored the car, you know, and then when I could afford it later, I sold it after a year, got my 840 back for it, but the guy had to take it away in a trailer because the chassis was broken. <laughs> uh, and Then as soon as uh, my wife and I could afford... Um, another Elan we bought another series three, yeah, and subsequently i 've got a series four which be which has been modernized, so bits don 't break on it, and yeah. you know? um, so that 's for me is just and and I still when I drive it to work i 've still got a grin on my face I really, you know it 's just it's just it 's everything I like in a motor car, and even though it 's flawed um, with its a chassis It's torsional stiffness is not very good with a backbone. However, Chapman used to, like me, Chapman used to build the cars with very soft natural frequencies, you know, yes, springing. Absolutely. I think that I worked out, that had a natural frequency of under 60 or, or 70 cycles a minute. And so that means you don't need the, sh- the stiffness in the chassis because you've got such, as soon as you stiffen the springs on on the land, you've got to put a stiffer chassis in. Of course. Um, so I just, I love the concept, I love the styling, I yeah. love the engine, and, and I still to this day get as much pleasure driving the car as I did then. Brilliant. So,
2: you arrive in England, essentially broke, wanting to get a job at Lotus, but almost by chance ending up at Broughton. Absolutely by chance, yeah. You, turn, so you You turned up for somebody else's interview? I did,
1: 15 <laughs> minutes before him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, just, just talk us through. So, did 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 Colin ever get back to you?
1: Oh, yeah, yes. I mean, I, I went the second day I was in in the UK. I went up to Hethel and I I my interview was with a chap called Brian Luff, who was head of engineering. This wasn't for the racing team; it yeah. was for the road car side. Sure. And uh, I hadn't contacted them for three or four months before I came over. He said, as soon as you get to England, you know, just turn up and we'll we'll have a chat. So I did. And he said, "Don't you read the newspapers?" And I said, "Well, I only arrived yesterday." And he said, "We're going through a bit of a mini recession, and all those cars out there on the airfield, those are unsold, and we just put twenty or thirty people out of work. So, so, I, the, so they're not and hiring. <laughs> so, so that was my Lotus interview. Gosh,
2: okay. But you, you got another one? You, what, did you just walk into Brabham on the off chance,
1: or I, and I got told I was, I was." On and off with Len Bailey, who was designing a, a Lamor car for four down at Fair Oaks Aerodrome. Yeah. Alan Mann. Yes. And uh, I think it was called a 3L or a 3 the 3F3L or something. you meant to be the sort of GT40 success. Yes, the yeah. long aerodynamic job. Beautiful, but not very... No, yeah. very unstable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I'd been for my second interview, and, and Len was... Uh, we need somebody, but I'm not sure we can afford somebody. We need somebody. Phone me to come back again for a second interview. It was on and off, on and off, you know. Yeah. And while I was on, he left the, draw- the design office, and there was a couple of guys in there. And one of the old guys said to me, he never make up his mind. He's been talking about taking somebody else on for months, you know. But he said, Bradman, just up the road. I think they're looking for somebody. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. So you went into, you walked into Bradman? Walked into Bradman. Uh, met Tornak. Yeah. Uh, Ron and Ron wasn't interested in my academic qualifications at all. (laughs) But when I told him that I designed and built my own engine and car and one race, that got his imagination. Yeah. And he picked up a part, I think it was an engine part he had on his desk, and he said, How would you make that? So I went through the milling and the the, the lathes and the four jaw chuck and which tools you'd use, and he went, You got the job. That was it. And what was the job? job was uh, a a designer. Yeah. Uh, In those days, you had designers who could do calculations and stress, and you had draftsmen, basically. And they had, like, one draftsman, I think, from memory, and three or four designers, or three designers, I think. So I was a designer. But I didn't go immediately on to doing Formula One cars. I spent the first year doing uh, Formula Two, Formula Three, Formula Atlantic cars. Yeah a one-off special um, hill climb car for a guy. Stuff like that, you know. And am I right
2: in saying that as you came out of his office,
1: the bloke who... Yeah, the guy coming for the interview turned up, <laughs> and, and many, many... Uh, the thing I regret more than anything is many years later, quite recently, I went to Jack Braman's memorial at Silverstone yeah. in the club up there. And uh, I was in, within talking within a group of people and this guy was standing patiently waiting and he tapped me on the shoulder you know and he said you stole my job this old boy it was the blake yeah and I, I said i turned back to the the crowd you know and i said oh fantastic we shook hands i said great to meet you you know turned back to the crowd to finish the conversation when i turned around he'd gone huh? and i never found him again so it's, it's a shame really because i would have loved to you know had a beer or something yes
2: and, yeah well you might be listening to this who knows um and you progressed very quickly through. The, so when did you, what? When did you join?
1: Rather? I joined in, 19, in June nineteen seventy. So yeah. Jack was still driving. Yes, uh, that was Jack's last year. Yeah, yeah. And then around the end of that year, Bernie appeared on the scene. And unbeknown to us, because there was zero communication, unbeknown to us, he had bought Jack's fifty percent of the business. And then he was working with he was Bernie was really only interested in in Formula One not so much the production cars because we made those days up to 60 production cars a year you know Formula Two Formula, Formula Three yeah. Formula Atlantics and things. 40. And was
2: that still at the stage where you could for that sort of car you could kind of make one basic kind and just put different engines in it depending on which set of Not rigs. really
1: no um, yeah yes for Formula th- Atlantic Two and Three yeah they were very similar the yes. same chassis basically sure. a bit like Lotus 18, exactly. uh, Formula yes. Junior, Formula 3, Formula 2... Formula, Formula 1, <laughs> everything, yes. Except Formula 1, by then everybody was on monocoques. Yes. Uh, so yeah. that was a bit different. Yeah. And we were still making space frames uh, for the other cars. And we switched to monocoques about a year or two later, seventy-four, okay. I think, we switched to monocoques for yeah. the other ones. And, uh, and it was pretty obvious that Bernie and Ron didn't really get on. Mm. And during 1971... We still didn't know what had happened with Bernie's owner. He just turned up, you know. Um, During 71, he evidently bought out Ron's 50% uh, 50%, and then owned Brabham 100%. Yeah. And then in the 71 season without Jack there, we were running a real hodgepodge. Uh, The chief designer was Ralph Bellamy, Mm -hmm. and he'd done a car called the BT37, and we had a 33 still running and a lobster claw 34. Yeah. And it was a real, and you know, none of the cars were terribly competitive. Yeah. And I think we finished the championship near the bottom of the leaderboard. Who was driving the Um Graham Hill, um, Tim Schenken, I yeah. think, in 71. And
2: Graham was past his best by then.
1: Yeah, but the car, to be fair to Graham, the cars were... Brilliant. Yeah. You know? uh, and then 72 was very much the same thing. But in the meantime... But had you been promoted, were you? as seventy two? not yet. So the end of 71, I was approached by Alan Academy to do a Group 5 prototype for them all to of try the, the Duckens. Yeah. And I was going to leave Brabham to do that. And then I don't know whether Bernie found out or I, I went to Bernie and said... And he, I said, look, I've shaken i Alan's hand, you know, I really can't back out of that. And he he said, oh, you can moonlight that. And very soon after that, he said, I'm I'm sick and tired of being back at the back of the grid. During 72, I want you to, you're chief designer, I'm I'm getting rid of all the other people, you're it, and I want a brand new Formula 1 car. And I don't want, his words were, I don't want to use any parts from any of the other car on a clean sheet of paper. And you were, I think, 26 years old. I was then, in 71... I was 25. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so my first Grand Prix season with my car was 73. And I was 26 then. And then in, in 74, he promoted me to technical director to run the entire technical side of the business. So, And I was then, what, 26 or 27? Yeah. So I found myself running the technical side of a Formula One team at 27. Did that, did that sort of daunt you, or was it? Not to- at all. I don't... And thinking back now, I should have been terrified. Yeah. But I don't remember even being worried about it. I just got stuck in and did it. You know? But in those days, I was the only person in the design office. So, you know, there's 600 drawings for a new car. I had to do the 600 drawings. I had to make sure the parts were made, the cars were assembled correctly, tested. Yeah. Um, we weren't going to a wind tunnel quite then, so I didn't have wind tunnel testing. But rather stupidly, I engineered all three cars, so the number one, number two car, and the T-car, where all the other teams had three engineers Couldn't. on the cars, which was which was bad, really. Um, stupid, actually,
2: thinking about... Uh, well, also, presumably, at the same time, during the course of the season, thinking about the car for the following season, and yeah. and so on and so on. Yeah. And Did you get stressed out by that, or did you
1: take that Yeah, I had a total collapse. Did you? Like, I was working just silly hours, you know, uh, in fact, when I did the Duckham's, I was getting home from Brabham about eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock. And then I was working a quick bite to eat. And we were in an unheated, my wife and I were in an unheated, one-bedroom flat. Um, which had no, it, it literally had no heating. Didn't have night storage, it had nothing. So in the winter, there was ice on the inside of the walls and the windows. Mm. And I had a little drawing board like this and a tiny lamp. And I used to work from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock on the Duckham's car. And then be back at work at seven at Bravo. Yeah, that's not sustainable, so I was is having it? Like two hours sleep. Yeah. And then I think it was seventy-two. I woke up one morning, just fell over basically. Um, had a total collapse. But eventually, got back on your feet. And yeah, yeah. Time for the next race, probably.
2: <laughs> so, um, when did your cars? When did when did you win
1: a car of yours first win a race? Well, the, the 42 actually led us first race yeah. in Spain, um, but we had a drive-sharp boot leak. Um, but then I had to wait till 74 to get a win, and that was... That was um, well, once again, we led Argentina and ran out of fuel on the last lap. Yeah. Uh, but when we went to South Africa, we won that. And that was quite nostalgic because the last race Brabham had won, a Brabham had won, was Kyle Army in 1970 with Jack. Yeah. And that was Jack's last win. And because it was South Africa, my yeah. then home country. Yes. It was, a, and my folks were there.
2: And that was with Reutemann driving.
1: Reutemann, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, let's have another one of your cars. Well, it has. To, I was funny enough when I was thinking about that as the top six cars. I was about to write. Is a Freudian about to write McLaren F1. I thought, hold on a minute, I've just done a better one than the McLaren <laughs> F1. So I crossed out the McLaren F1 and put 250. Because 250, quite honestly, is everything the McLaren F1 delivered, yeah. but just better yeah. you know, in every way. And, and it would have to be- be Better, 50. obviously, because there's been a 30-year gap.
2: Absolutely. But also better, presumably, because... You could do this absolutely
1: the way that you wanted to. You weren't part of any other corporate structure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and for a th- another reason was I know what didn't work on the F1. Yeah. You know they've had a few foibles and a few things that weren't too clever to be honest. Yeah. And of course you can fix those by design. Yeah. Uh, which is what I've done. But the the that made the car's good and the central driving position's great. Yes. But the engine is just mega. <laughs> it's just mega. I, I I still can't believe what Cosworth had done with that you know it's um when I grew up you had revs in power or you had torque yeah in a racing engine or even a road engine yeah you know? and even even as late as something like a Honda S2000 you remember that yeah very well lovely revs Top but 9000 but, but nothing in nothing there. down yeah. the bottom end you know yeah and this engine, okay, it helps the cars only a thousand kilos, mm. of course, but it's that's not the whole story. you know the motor is just mind boggling the the drivability and the low down the creamy torque low down, and then this massive pickup so, so it reminds rim. us of
2: the spec it's a three point nine liter it's three yeah four, naturally aspirated. three nine nine yeah three okay. or something Naturally yeah. aspirated Natural v V12. twelve V12. Um, and you were you were, you were saying earlier before we we came on, you were saying that you had a target figure from Cosworth and now you've got a real figure from Cosworth. Yeah, so we, we
1: targeted 650 and we got 665, I think it is, a yeah. uh, horsepower and, of course, the 12,000 revs. Um, it actually, the heart stops actually 12,4. Yeah. Um, and it's just a magic thing. You know, once again, I'm an engine guy and I've, I've always said I think the heart of any sports car and certainly a supercar is the engine. And that's um, spinning faster
2: than any of those 1970s f1 cars you designed with D F yeah, oh yeah the,
1: they were i think we were around ten thousand, those years. Yeah. yeah yeah and it's but it's it's also the pickup the, the, it's it's just the most ridiculous throttle response the f1 i mean you've driven an f1 yeah uh, you it's nothing else on the planet at that time was yeah. like it when you in neutral and you touch the throttle it's like a motorbike you know yeah and this is three times quicker
2: I drive, I drove an F1 only a couple of years ago and mm. even today even by the sounds because everything's turbocharged these days. Yeah. And so actually in some ways the F1 throttle response is perhaps even more remarkable now compared to all those turbocharged yeah, cars yeah, sure. than it would have been, you know, back in the day. So yes and it is and the, and the, and when you turn it off there's it just, no it just <laughs> stops. <laughs> yes. That's uh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. So and this one does that but even more so.
1: It it does, yeah. Yeah. And uh it's it's just phenomenal. I mean, you can't. There's no turbocharged engine on the planet that can even hope to, you know, keep up keep up with a, an NA like that. And of course, this one's got everything: titanium, the valves, the conrods and everything. And of course, being a smaller capacity, the reciprocating parts and the rot- rot- rotating parts are all much lighter than the F1 as well. So it all adds up. Yes, the
2: F1 has more than half as much again in terms of capacity.
1: Yeah, but less power. Yeah. Yes. From fifty percent more capacity. Yeah, I mean it's just mind-boggling. And then of course, if you couple that to a car with the footprint of a Porsche Boxster, yes. the central driving position, yes. a scuttle height that's probably four inches lower than any other supercar, like the F1 was. Yeah, and it just the whole experience is just mind-boggling. You know, I think I can't wait for the owners to get their cars next year. You know, <laughs> hopefully they'll be very pleasantly surprised I'm sure they because will. a lot of them. Are F1 owners, of course, yeah. but then there's equally there's a lot of people that have never even driven or sat in an F1, and they're, they're, those people in particular are going to be, uh, you know, bowled over, I'm sure, with the, ex- with the driving experience. So it, it has to be T50 has to be right up there on the list. Yeah, okay. it, it's my it's it in in a sentence it is my new F1, 30 years on. You know, there's the the, the reason for doing it the reasons, I beg your pardon, for doing it are exactly the same as the reasons I did the F1. And the way that you have positioned the car, insofar as
2: the F1 was never meant to be a racing car, the F1 was meant to be a car that you could use. Mm-hmm. It's what's, it sat three people, you'd put luggage in it, had air conditioning over there. So the positioning is the same with the it's T50 exactly as well. the same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So that's definitely on the list. Yeah.
2: Okay. So now we're, we're back, we're now in the mid-1970s. You're an established, successful Formula One car designer what was that life like back then because we kind of think of it and we think of it as a very dangerous time for the drivers Mm. although perhaps it was getting slightly better by then better than it had been in the in the 60s i guess um fewer races than you have today but obviously you know a fraction of the
1: staff a fraction of the resources oh yes i mean i've got a picture of us when i did the bt44 so the second car yeah i've got a picture of the entire brabham team standing outside, behind a car. At, and that was st- when well, we were still at Newhall, by the canal, before we moved to um, Chessington. And it was 17 people. And that includes um, the accountant, <laughs> the receptionist, and the yeah. secretary. Yeah. So 14 technical people. Yeah. And that was, that was, we were making 40 production cars a year. And going to Formula One, we did an Indianapolis study and we did a couple of hill climb specials during the year, 14 people. And the travelling people, I think we were eight. It was Herbie Blanche, myself, Bernie, of course. Yeah. And, and did you always go to every Grand Prix? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Because you were engineering the cars on the
2: site. You, you, you didn't have people to do that for you.
1: Absolutely. You were no, there I,
2: downloading the drivers. Yeah, I was drawing, and... drawing all the bits. Yeah. I
1: was helping sort out spares for the truck. Yeah.
2: So if a driver, if, a driver I don't know, if it was in practice or qualifying, a driver came in and he didn't like the balance of the car, he'd talk to you about that? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. that you would be the one who would say, well, we
1: need to do this, yeah. that, and the other. Whereas by the time I got to McLaren, I, I was technical director over, over three engineers. Yeah. So I had three people on the cars. Yes. Of course, I'd go in and talk to the driver if there was a yeah. problem as well. Then yeah. I'd, do the, I'd do the debrief after yeah. the practice or qualifying. But it was luxury you yeah. know, compared to what
2: I had at Brabham. Um, I guess the, uh, well, you're, you're, most famous for Bradman obviously for the, um, Nelson Piquet's championship winning cars, um, but also the fan car. Yeah. Um, and that was a reaction to the Lotus of 78 and
1: 79? 79, yes. Yeah. Or 70, yeah, what was the first? Well, the
2: first one, the 78, had a bit of ground effect, but the
1: 79 was, was yeah. the
2: car for that season, which was really yes, yeah, the, was the first, first ground effect yeah. car to win a championship. And
1: we, we had a flat, it was quite simple, we had a flat 12 Alpha, which was much wider than So you could do a ground effect car properly. And, and it was, the cylinder heads were right where you yeah. needed the uh, diffuser to mm-hmm. start sweeping up. And the cylinder heads would have been much narrower than everybody else, you know. Before I looked at the fan car, I looked at a twin monocoque car, so... Ah, okay. I had, I moved the... Like uh, an 88? No, 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 completely different. So I I just chopped the car off at the rear bulkhead, bolted the engine directly onto the rear bulkhead, so it was in the lowest part of the diffuser shape, where the cylinder heads could stick in. Ah, okay. Then I had a fuel tank monocoque with a tube through the middle and a quill shaft... (laughs) And then the gearbox bolted on the back of that monocoque. And that moved the engine to the middle of the car. And I'd had that on the drawing board for a bit, but then I worked out it was going to be 20, 25 kilos heavier. And the Alpha engine was heavy anyway. So I dumped that, and then we came up with the fan idea. Which, of course, didn't need venturis or anything. No. Yeah. No, and it did one race? Yeah, sweet, yeah.
2: Am I right in saying that in qualifying you had
1: to run it full of fuel to try and... That fix- was Bernie, yes. Bernie, we tried to say to the drivers, it's in your own interest not to go quickly. You know, we don't care if you're on the second or third row, you're going to pass everybody in the first <laughs> lap anyway. Um, but the drive- drivers being drivers just couldn't help it, you know. yeah. And they were going faster and faster. So Bernie pulled them in and he said, put them on full tanks. And they still qualified on the second row, yeah. on full tanks, which meant the car was... You could work it out. It meant the car was two and a half seconds a lap faster than everybody else. And am I right? I had a conversation with you years ago
2: in which you said to me you were quite glad that Bernie withdrew the car, because one of the myths about the car is that it got banned. It was never banned, was it? it? Bernie withdrew it. And I think you said to me you were quite glad that happened because you said the one that you had on the groaring board would have pulled the driver's head off.
1: Yes, I already had the BT47 on the board, and that, that had two fans. And, and a much bigger surface area, huge surface area. Yeah. Um, probably something approaching three square metres. Yeah. Maybe even four square metres. And then uh, because the fan drew 33 horsepower to drive it, and of course on the straight you don't want the car sucking down. Yeah. Um, I, had, I had done fans with variable pitch so you could feather them <laughs> on the straight and then And would
2: that would that have been done automatic or the driver would have to have done that?
1: No, it would it would have had to be an automatic. Yeah. Off the throttle or something. So you have fed you know, feathered them on the straight so they didn't take any horsepower or very little horsepower. Yes. And then just before you got to the corner, a bit like drag reduction. Yes. So just before you got to the corner they they kicked back in again. And and that car would have just been ridiculous, you know. That would that would have been I don't know how many seconds they'll have quicker. Yeah. And massive G force. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um and so you you move on from that to the to the 49 and the 52 and those championship yeah. winning cars. What 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 are your memories of that era? Because I mean it uh, they it, it was still quite competitive, wasn't it? I mean the the whole,
1: you know, Formula 1 at the time yeah, was Yeah, Formula 1 was so different then. It was a mixture of unbelievably hard, hard work and long hours. Yeah. Um but such fun, you know. You could it was like a travelling circus with different families, you know. You could wander into the Ferrari garage, forget, you know, forget the pit. You could wander into the garage and have a look at what they were doing and have a chat too I used to chat to Mauro Fagiri or whoever was Ferrari, you know. Um, and uh, it was just a different atmosphere completely, but very hard work. I mean, the hours we used to... quite. If you had a bad weekend, you didn't go to back to the hotel from Friday to Sunday night, quite often.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, with the, can we talk a bit about the low-line car um, and why that... The 55, Yeah. yes.
1: And why that didn't work. Yeah, well, it certainly worked in the wind tunnel, my goodness. We had the lift-over-drag increase we had was... I mean, if you, if you in those days, if you, if you could in, increase the lift-over-drag lift from season to season by one and a half, two 2%, you know, it was pretty good. And I think we were like 10% better on that car. And I just, I just couldn't wait to finish it and race and, it. And,
2: and can you explain just in, in layman's terms what the, uh, the aerodynamic principle behind it was? So
1: basically, it's, you've, got, um, you've got bumps in, in a Formula One car in front of the rear wing. Yeah. And those bumps are a windscreen, a driver, rollover bar. Mm. And, and in the case of BMW, with a vertical uh, four-cylinder engine yeah. and the induction uh, box sticking out one side, a big induction box right in front of the rear wing. Just where you don't want. And I've tried really hard on T fifty, on 51, 52 to try and fare that in as best I could, but it just always stuck out there in front of the wing. You know, so we were worse off than a DFE or a flat twelve or a V twelve. Yeah. Um, so the the concept of the car was a few things. It was to lay the engine over at fifteen degrees. So that rotated the airbox until it was behind the driver's head. Where there was already a bump. Yes. Yeah. But because it was so low, the driver's head was way above it. So it was completely So scary, I laid the driver down. It's not a new idea. Yeah. Chapman, all the cigar-shaped cars, I call them, in the 60s, yeah. you know, the one-and-a-half-litre formula, sure. they had back angles of 35 mm. degrees yeah. in those days. Um. So I thought, what an opportunity. We've now not just got... Because the engine was only this high, Mm. laying down. And then we had this airbox, which is just about there. And the driver's head was up here. So I designed this car with a a 35 degree, I think it was, back angle, uh, to get the driver right down. And so aerodynamically, the rear wing was totally clean. Mm. And, of course, the frontal area of the car in itself was much lower too. So the drag was down. Yeah. Even though the wheels in those days were about 50% of the total drag. But it it just was just... And, of course, the centre of gravity went down. So everything got better. Um, But, unfortunately, it didn't work because both Russia and I had forgotten about scavenging the cylinder head. and uh, Because all the oil... When you went round... I can't remember which way the engine was lying. When you went round corners that way, all the oil stayed in the sump. When you went round corners that way... Uh. It all, it all piled up in the cylinder head. Yeah. And and we got these oil temperatures just the, right off the scale. But only after, say, left-hand... No, it was right-hand corners, that's right. Only after right-hand corners, the oil temperature just shot up. And and the car just had no power coming out of the corners. Coming out of the other corners, they had all the power again.
2: Yeah,
1: And, and we didn't suss it. We just neither I sussed it or Paul sussed it. And we we struggled and struggled. In addition to that, the car was my first all-carbon monocoque. And the car had a massively long wheelbase Mm. because of the driver Because of the driver being so stretched out, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't think the chassis was ever stiff enough. But the the guys didn't, to be fair, the guys didn't ever complain too much about the handling. It was all trying to sort out why the engine didn't have power and where the oil temperature was, you know. And we kept on increasing the oil cooling and increasing increasing it, and then eventually, I went to Mallory Park, which has a long right Gerard's yeah yeah, and we we did a lap and came into the pits and measured the oil quickly, measured the oil in the in the tank yeah and it was just it was numb there it just <laughs> it all sat it the all engine. sat in the cylinder head. yeah um so it, it was a complete disaster, but then of course. The redemption was when I went to McLaren, I just put exactly the same, I knew aerodynamically the thing was dynamite. Yeah. And just put exactly the same driving position as we had at Brabham. Yeah. I actually took the drawings with me, which now you probably get locked up for. But I actually had the 55 drawings with me. Ah, we okay. So, the there was, so there was a lot of the 55 in it, the MP44? It, it was exactly the same driving position. If you put, I had two cars in this building for my exhibition at 50 years. And I, I had them together. but you look into them, it's identical, absolutely identical. So you left
2: Brabham in 86 Six. and went to McLaren. Yep. Um, did you just feel, feel that you had um, done what you wanted to do at, at Brabham and, and, and you could see that, well, McLaren it was, were already it was a, a, mixture a force of, to be reckoned with?
1: I, I was getting a little bit tired of Formula One, to be honest. I'd done... Seventeen years yeah. at the end of sixty of eighty six, it was a little bit of that, but it was also the fact that Bernie was moving on. You know, Bernie could see, okay. yeah. he could see that Formula One it was a fantastic opportunity to improve Formula One, and uh, and it, you know, it was obviously staring him in the face, and he had the foresight to see that nobody else did, and he got more and more involved with Formula One and less and less with Brabham. And we lost, we lost Nelson Piquet over money. Um, and, of course, Nelson and I were like that. We'd been with us seven years, two world championships. Yes. We lost a tyre contract. BMW were very disillusioned with the performance during 85, 85, was it, 86, 86. And um, they, were, they were pulling out. So we didn't have much left, to be honest. Sure. And then the final straw was we lost Elio De Angelis in a testing accident at Paul Ricard. I remember. And I just thought, you know what? I've had enough. Yeah. And I was, I was, I thought, I've always wanted to do like a supercar to beat Ferrari. Yeah. So I'll probably go and start a consultancy or find somebody that wants to fund a supercar and I'll do a supercar. Um, that'll be different. Yeah. And then Ron, Ron was very, very persuasive. Um, <laughs> yeah uh, as he's known to be he just lost uh very clever him really because you know john john ran the whole thing the design testing everything and of course there was a huge vacuum when john left so and Rod could see that so very clever really so I agreed to go to McLaren, but I said, honestly, whatever you offer me, it's three years, and that's it, because that would be 20 years in Formula One. Yeah. And of course, I had the three years and the three World Championships, so. Yeah. Okay. So before we
2: just talk about that, can we have another one of your last blast cars?
1: So the next, the next one is actually a poster car. I've okay. never owned one. Right. I never even not driven one, because I don't fit. Yeah. Uh, I've got a lot of small Italian uh, sports cars and racing cars in my, in my collection. Yeah. Um, Abarts and things. And, you know, I love that era. The sixties for me was just okay. It was my era in Formula One and sports car racing. Sure. You know, but but nevertheless, that was a, that was a golden age of design for me. You know, uh, with motorcars, both the styling and the engineering. People were experimenting like mad. You know, with engine positions and frames and chassis and things. And the for me, the Alpha Thirty Three Stradale is probably the best yeah. little motor car yeah ever built yeah you know? and yeah it's a bit crude in places and the interior in particular and it was supposed to be they were going to make 50 for homologation to go racing but they never did i think they made half a dozen or so, 12 or something in the end um but it's just everything i love in a sports car a sport or a sports racing car That's so beautiful it's a it's a beautiful thing aerodynamically it's very efficient yeah it's tiny yeah it's not over-engined. It's got a gorgeous little 9,000-rev um, uh, 2-litre V8 in it. Yes. Um, designed by another friend of mine, Carlo Akiti, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then the technical side of it, you know, it's got this wacky chassis, which has got two cast aluminium tubes down the side, which had the bag tanks inside them. <laughs> really? They were the fuel tanks. That's the whole chassis. It's two big tubes like this. Yeah, full of fuel. And then it had... Two magnesium castings, a typical Italian, typical Kiti, actually. Two big horn-shaped magnesium castings picking up the rear frame and the suspension. And then at the front, it was one huge magnesium casting that went right across the width of the car, about that wide, about that long, and about that high. And it had all the steering, the pedals, the... I loved that. I did that on the BT52. I had a mag casting on the front of that that housed everything. All the suspension, the steering, yeah. everything—similar thing. So I loved it technically. I loved it physically. It—it it was a successful little car in itself. Yeah. Beautiful little engine, you know. And it's almost worth buying one just to look at, you mm-hmm. know, even if you can't fit in it. Yeah. You, know, you and I would never. Do fit you know in what? It.
2: It's one of the very, very Lotus eighteen is another mm-hmm. of cars that mm-hmm. I've had to give up on.
1: Yeah. Because the opportunity to drive them has been there. Yeah. I actually
2: I got into the eighteen and they had to dismantle the car to get me out. Couldn't <laughs> drive it. My feet went past the pedals. <laughs> and the same with the um, with the thirty three. I just mm, yeah. I couldn't even get
1: in that. No,
0: I
2: couldn't Absolutely get in Absolutely no any, chance. Either, no. Yeah.
1: Somebody at the quail had one and I and uh, she saw me admiring it, you know, and I said she said, Have you ever driven one? I said, I haven't even sat in one. She said, Have a go, you know, and I couldn't get it. <laughs> But that was my poster. Yeah, you know that was my '60s poster Beautiful. car. Yeah, that the 206 Dino SP sports racing car comes a close second. Yes, but um, I just love those '60s motor cars. Yeah, the P the P Ferraris. You know the P3s. Well, there course, there is quite a lot of that in
2: in the T33 and your T33 as
1: yeah, well. Absolutely, there. and and that's I, I'm unashamedly I, I, that's what 33 is. Yeah, yeah, it's all those car, motorcars yeah. just brought up to up to speed sort of thing. Beautiful. Okay, so
2: you arrive at McLaren, which I'm guessing is culturally quite different to... Yes, to very, very ...under Ron. Um, what was your actual role? That you, were you the, the technical director with designers working for you? Absolutely. Which would have been um, completely different yeah, I mean, how you'd I drew, worked I do
1: a few bits myself. Yeah. But it's the first time in my life I've had people, apart from David North and one other guy, Paul, uh, at Brabham, who started towards the end of the years at Brabham, who did drawings. Um, it's the first in my life I've had people to draw bits for me.
2: Yeah.
1: It was fantastic. So I could organise the test team. I could organise the race engineering. Uh, over, as I, say, I said earlier, I've got, I had one person on each of the three cars under me. You know, an engineer, a race engineer on the three cars. So basically I was in charge of all the design, all the testing, all the racing, anything technical. Yeah, basically. And uh, no. I said to Ron when I was coming there, "If I'll come, but I want the same freedom I had at Brabham
2: yeah.
1: over over the design of the cars, over the running of the cars, the testing, the direction we go. You know, everything. I, otherwise, I'm not interested." And he agreed. Yeah. And like Bernie, he let me get on with it. Yeah, never so, never really interfered at all.
2: So you have so your your memories of your talent McLaren on the Formula One team are, are happy memories.
1: They are. It, 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 it wasn't the same. It never gelled because there was a group, a small group of people who were under Barnard that thought they were going to be running the business. So when I arrived to put their noses at the joint. Sure. And so we never really, I never had the gel. I had. I Brabham was like a family. Hmm. Everybody in the team, you know. It was, it was just like a family. And I never had that feeling at... Um, at McLaren but on the other hand I just got on with it and we had success you know I got on that's not true actually I got on really well oh I brought David North back into the world because they had a terrible gearbox designer um, left just after I arrived and uh, (laughs) and I brought David North back in and and I got on really well with Neil Oakley Neil Oakley was their best designer by far you know so much so that I entrusted the future of the NA engines back with Neil again. So we did a sort of one-off turbo for 88, and then and then all the NA cars, Neil was uh, lead on those.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and just very briefly, just talk to me a bit about Linate Airport after
1: <laughs> Monza I know it's sort of gone into folklore, and yeah, but, autom- automotive folklore. But is it but, true? But it's absolutely The true. flight was delayed? Absolutely true, yeah, because I was just about halfway through my three-year period, yeah. and I'd already been quietly talking to myself about, it's all very, you know, great bra- bravado to say, I'm only doing three years, but after Formula One for 20 years, mm. what do you do that's exciting?
2: And had Ron or you know, anyone even floated the idea of maybe doing a
1: road car? Yeah, Mansell Auger. Mansell had, yeah. Because yeah, he wanted to do it with Williams, right? actually. yeah, And... Uh, and so I was already thinking, my God, you know, um, what am I going to do? I'm not staying in Formula One, but what am I going to do? And what a what a high to go out on three world championships. I mean, that's the way to finish, isn't yeah. it? You know? um, and Crichton was also talking at, so about... Crichton Brown. Yeah, Crichton Brown. So yeah. I mean, Crichton Brown was also saying to me, what are you going to do afterwards? Me, you know, have you th- thought about doing a sports car or a road car? And I said, well, actually... After Brabham, I was thinking about doing that anyway. So we'd had a bit of a conversation. But that wasn't with the group. That was just Crichton and myself quietly talking. Yeah. Uh, but at Lenate, we got, we, we got stuck there. And um, Mansell piped up with the idea. Crichton and I, of course, latched onto it. Ron liked the idea. And, and that's honestly absolutely how it happened. So by the time we got back from Italy, we were going to have a car company. But the idea of doing a central driving position. Oh, no, no, no. That that's was ages ago, wasn't it? We didn't even discuss. Uh, oh, yeah. You didn't even discuss. Yes. Indeed, yeah. We, we didn't even have that conversation. It was just, let's, let's start a car company. Right. Not, we're going to do supercars or, you know, okay. let's start a car company. Sure. Uh, and, and spread the brand, use the brand, power of the brand into something bigger. And Ron also had the idea. And he was right. He said, we're starting to fall behind on electronics, so let's also start an electronics business, uh, which we did. That was Ron's idea, yeah. 100%. Um, yeah, so that was, that was absolutely how it happened, yeah. And when did, when
2: did the, the project that became the F1, when did that actually sort of formally kick off? Because
1: presumably that would require 89. 89. I slowed down on going to races after halfway through the season in 89. I only went to like every second one because I was looking for a building and looking for how big the team had to be. And I wrote that, that winter. I wrote... They're all in the Driving Ambition book. I hand-wrote yeah. all the notes and I presented those to the other directors and I said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the very, very, very top. So... Nobody can better us, and then we can go anywhere we like from there. You, you can never, If you start doing a Lotus Elise, you can't do a supercar. Yes. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know? But if you start with the best car you can possibly do, yeah. you can always go higher volume or different or whatever. So, no, the, no, the F1, uh, the concept and everything, was just me writing to myself initially.
2: But the idea of doing... Because what, what, what has obviously always been to me so fascinating about the f1 is that it was never trying to be in statistical terms you know the fastest in a straight line and it wasn't meant to be an extreme um you know f40 type car however good an f40 clearly is um and was that just you just wanting to do the best car that you could but at the same time keep it usable and Keeping it,
1: it was more than keeping it usable. Uh, my my goal absolutely was the best driving experience. And and as a designer, you know, especially if you're doing the styling, the the aerodynamics, the yeah. packaging. As a designer, if you focus on top speed or a lap time you will compromise so much about the driving experience,
2: but, but even so, you didn't. It didn't have to have three seats. It didn't have to have luggage space to do to, to hit those well, it, those targets. It, you, you made it not only the best driving experience,
1: but yeah. in a completely usable form, which is obviously yes being no, what that, was so remarkable. That the was part of the, for me. Part of the driving experience is you encourage people to use it. Yeah, so you get in a car it's got pedal offsets or bad visibility think twice about getting back into it i wanted a car when you got out of it you just wanted to get straight back in yeah and do some more driving you know and it just happened to go quick you know i only wanted a four liter engine to start with and it was russia that said well you know that's bmw paul I russia i didn't know yeah. yes paul russia I, I didn't know he had the the first m3 engine in mind the straight six and of yes. course he was thinking about two of those yes um, but it, well, people have said that that engine is two M3 engines or related to that. Well, the M3 that. came after that, I think, didn't it? 92, whatever. But but, yeah, it's, but, but the F1 engine is a bespoke engine. Oh, it's a totally bespoke. It yeah. doesn't use anything. I did say to Paul, if there's a few bits like, I don't know, you know, cam followers or some, something that people can't see, yeah. you can use production parts. But in the end, he said there was nothing suitable and nothing light enough, so... did everything new and there's also there's also this
2: story about the car that it was a car that was designed without budgetary concern that you had a completely i I, I wish yeah yeah the budget
1: budget for setting up the facility because it was an empty building didn't even have a tile floor Um, the budget for moving into the building kitting it out with furniture the workshop designing the car to the first running prototype was eight million pounds and we did it for 8.5. Yeah. Yeah, and even back then, that wasn't a lot of money. Yeah. But there was no constraint on the price, which was the key yeah. to doing the best car on the planet then. Yeah.
2: Um, and I guess if there was a, a shame with it, it was born into a very different world to the one in which it had been conceived. Yeah. In terms of, you know, the global economy. and yeah. it was the
1: really worst... Possible time to launch a supercar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So, was the was the plan originally that you were going to do? What was it? Three hundred and fifty cars.
1: No, two hundred and fifty. That's something that's been in print incorrectly so many times. What happened was, we asked for uh, a fifty grand deposit. We we had a no. Even before that, we went out to everybody we knew and went we're doing a supercar, you know, put your name down. Yeah. And hundreds of people put their name down. Yeah. And then we went out and said, it's looking like the price is going to be north of half a million quid. Yeah. And we'd like 50 grand deposit. And 95% of them dissolved into- and <laughs> ran away. <laughs> yes. Um, but then the ones that stayed, and they said, okay, you're asking us to put 50 grand down, which was a lot of money in those days. Mm. You know, Now it's quite common to have a big deposit on a supercar. Um, they said how many are you going to make? And we said, we want to make as many as we can. We have no idea how many people in the world can afford a million dollar car. You know? But did uh, you not have a business plan that was based on a sort of break-even yes, production? Yes, the break-even, break I think, was about 120 cars or something, yeah. something like that, just over 100 cars. Um, and we thought, great, so if we could sell 150, we are doing fine, you know. Um, and and these people said, two two. To a person, they said, "That's not really good enough." You know, if it's going to be that much money in that deposit, we want it in the contract that you won't make more than X. And we we came up; it was three hundred actually. Yeah. So we all sat round. The director sat round and said, "Well, oh, we don't know how many cars we can sell. But yeah. The break even's let's say one hundred and ten. I can't remember that 's something like that." So. You know, if we made 300, that would be a fantastic, yeah. successful deal. So let's see if they're happy with 300. We went back and they went, yeah, fine. So that's in the contract. But there was never an intention. We would have loved to have made 300. But, but there was never a realistic that expectation no, that you would.
2: Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Let's have another one of your cars.
1: Right. Um Another one of them is, is a car that I haven't owned, but I would love to own, but I absolutely adored the car when it came out. Racing car, and that was a Lotus 25. It's still... I quite often get asked, what's your best racing car in history? Mm. Um, and it's always the Lotus 25. Could you fit in one? Uh, no. no. <laughs> I've, I've got a Lotus 31 Formula 3 car, and I can't even get one leg in it. <laughs> yeah. um, and... Uh, yeah, it's just once again Chapman. You see, mm. um, first of all, I loved, as I said earlier, I loved that one and a half liter formula. You know where Ferrari V8. did a twelve cylinder. Yeah, one they liter. Yeah, uh, beautiful little thing. Yeah, and and even the little Coventry Climax V 8s You know, the wonderful little cars. Only one hundred and eighty horsepower in those yeah. days, but. And they all had this sort of cigar shape. So the BRMs were pretty. The Lola was pretty. The, yes. They were all pretty cars. But when the 25 came out, you know, if you look at the jump from the 24 to the 25, 24 was a conventional Chapman space, space frame. Space frame car, yeah. And then the 25 with that monocoque mm. and, and, it's, and just the shape of it and yeah. sleek. And of course, you put my favourite racing driver of all time, Jimmy Clark, in it as well. And, and I, m- saw that, I saw that combination race at Kyle Army. Wow. In a non-championship race up at up up Army in '63 or '64, yeah, and uh, I just adored that car. Down to even the detailing of it. You know, Lotus always had red uh, seats, red yes, and, seats, and the red dash and the red and the, wheel rim and all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and those two thin, long, slightly megaphone pipes. high exactly what you mean. Yeah, Together, it's beautiful. It's, there's nothing about the car i don't like yeah. there's not an angle i don't like and of course once again a bit like the 33 stradale it's not just the looks it was the technology with the monocoque.
2: but what, why did I've, I've often wondered about this and you're as good a person as i know to ask why did it take so long for I me mean, you know lance you were making monocot road cars in the 1920s you mm. know jaguar D-Type is arguably a, a monocoque yeah. car yeah. So why did it take until then for, you know, what would it, you oh, know, given the lightness and the stiffness? That's a
1: very, very good question. I just don't know. It's such a logical thing to do. Yeah. I mean, why did it take so long to put wings on cars? Yeah. It, both of those are such logical things. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I really don't. I can't answer that. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things you look back now and think. It's one of those moments, you if you
2: want where, someone does it and everybody else thinks until we've done it too we're out of this game Mm. because it was it was just completely game-changing wasn't it oh yeah it was like bolting
1: the dfv to the back of the 49 wasn't it yeah it was another one of those yeah so that that for me is and still is you know i mean i i I couldn't drive one but i just the fact of i'd love to own a 25 you know it's
2: it's also one of those cars that comes from an era where mm. cars had been developed, where they were still taking so they were the cleaner, smoother shapes, and before they started growing stuff again. Yes, yeah, So they are the ultimate in sort of stripped-back, yeah. spare 4 you, one car and design. And three wings of yeah, course, exactly. And, and still skinny just, tires. And, yeah,
1: just it's just that, and and Lotus's wobbly wheels, the Mag wheels and yes. stuff. You know, ev- everything. There's not a bit of that car I don't like. Yeah. You know? Even though the technology, I mean, having having front Inboard springs with front rockers was a really bad idea, which is why I invented uh, pull rod or rod operated rising rate suspension because that, those, everybody had them because they were very aerodynamic, but they're, they're an undamped leaf spring, you know, terrible. If you yeah. think about it from an engineering point of view, it's just awful. Yeah. That was the only thing, you know, but in those days I hadn't thought about pull rod suspension, so, you know. So, okay,
2: back to, um, back to the F1.
1: Um, you really didn't design it to be a racing car? Uh, No, honestly, I didn't. Not at all. And for the same reason, I didn't think about performance figures because I I actually lined the guys up and I said, please don't tell me this is going to go racing because I'm a racing car designer, I'll compromise it you Know this has got to be the best. Would it have
2: been very different if you designed it to be that car, yeah. but with an eye on the fact that somebody yeah, might want to have take had it a long. much
1: longer front and rear overhang, yeah, much longer sure to get the leverage, yeah. for a start, so it wouldn't have looked like the F1, yeah. Um, and suspension why, and
2: pickup points have been different and all, all that uh, sort yes, of thing? they would
1: have been designed to be able to be run much lower, which mm. was a big problem when we did go racing, we couldn't run very low ride heights because of the geometry, yeah, and um. Yeah, I would have done quite a bit of other stuff, I think, yeah. Um, so it, well, did it become clear to you that if you didn't make a racing version of it, somebody else would? Well, it wasn't at the time, no, because I just didn't think of it as a racing car. Yeah. But it, and then, of course, we had Ray Baum who yeah. turned up and went, if you don't do it, you know, typical, uh, dear old Ray, you know, if you don't do it, I'm going to take it to somebody, I'm going to make one myself. And then, you know, spoke to Ron and, and cried, and they thought... You know, if if they do that badly, it's going to reflect badly on us. So we better get stuck in and do it. Yeah. And that's when I got Jeff Hazel on board and we started looking at turning it into a... Right, but I mean, we didn't do much. We lowered it. We put... I had one day... Because the Formula One team were using a, a wind tunnel at Teddington. And they were using it a lot. And they could spare me one day... So I had one day in the wind tunnel to do, to do a racing kit, which was a wing on the back and yeah. a splitter out the front, yeah. a little side skirts, moved the oil radiator, lowered it a bit, put a roll cage and a fire extinguisher, and went racing. Synchromesh gearbox.
2: Yeah, it's quite old school
1: actually, really, isn't it? <laughs> yes.
2: Um, so how did that moment when that car won Le Mans in '95, the first car after Ferrari in '49? to win Le Mans, at, you know, from, from a manufacturer to win Le Mans at its very first attempt. How, how does that, in your head, how does that stack up against, you know, the Formula One That's World it. Championships?
1: That's it for me. I mean, it's, firstly, winning Le Mans is much harder than winning a World a Formula One World Championship, um, against comp- decent competition, that is, of course. Yeah. Um, and secondly, I mean, I, I've always loved sports car racing and Le Mans, and, I'd only been there once before in '72 with the Duckhams with Ducat, and yeah. and that ran very well. Yes. You know? um, so it was unbelievably special, and it was on my birthday as well. The race, uh-huh. the win. So no, that was that's it. That that you know I've, I've often been asked, what is your sort of highlight in your racing career? And that, I mean, winning the more with a GT car, for, as you say, first time, yeah. and and first, third, fourth, and fifth. Yes. I mean. Really, you know, it doesn't
2: get much better. The second than that. was a prototype, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I was there in in all that weather. It was <laughs> it was the most extraordinary yeah. time, wasn't it? Um, and so you carried on. When did the
1: um, the SLR project? Because I want to talk to you a bit about that. Yeah. So that was um, we had... after the F one. The success with the F one. Um, what I did was. Um, I decided, together with the guys, that um, the other directors, that carrying on with BMW made an awful lot of sense. Yeah. So I was in the middle of designing Project 2 and we did a presentation on Project 2 and that was going to be um, for volumes of a few hundred a year, I yeah. think seven or 800 from memory, and a much more sensibly priced motor car. Mm-hmm. And that had a part, it didn't have a carbon tub, it had sort of part carbon, part aluminium. Um, Central driving position? No, no. Side by side? It was 2 plus 2. Okay. So it was the same layout as my favourite Ferrari, the 308 GT4. Yes. So it had two, I mean, 2 plus 2, the same way a 911 is. Yeah. Two small seats, stroke luggage space. But you could get that. And what what engine would that have had? It had had the BMW straight 6, the M3 engine. Yeah. Transverse in the back. I was going to say, because otherwise your wheelbase would have been... Transverse in the back. Laying over I've got all the drawings still. Laying over with the transmission tucked underneath it. So it didn't use up much of the wheelbase, which yeah. allowed us to get some rear seats in. Yeah. And it would have been a lovely little car. It was going to be about twelve hundred kilos. Uh two plus two, you know, um with that charismatic six cylinder engine yes. in the back. Rear mid engine of course. Yeah. And, and uh, with us with a specific McLaren specific tune, so yeah. yeah. So I flew over to Munich in one of these massive hangars with the BMW board all there, and I had to present Project Two, and from just from a lectern, you know, to standing talking to them and present Project Two, and uh, and then I heard back about a month later. I heard back from Paul Roscher and Karl Hans Karlfeld, who was marketing director then. I heard back from them to say, "You've got the job." So. Suddenly, McLaren cars, as we were then, looked like it had a really good future. And then, unfortunately, I was up at a, some sort of function with with Stel and uh, and Ron up in London. And Ron took me to one side and he said, "Got some really exciting news. I've just signed a five-year deal with Mercedes for Formula One <laughs> engines." And I actually just turned around and left. And when when I confronted Ron about it afterwards he said well what's the problem I said that's the end of the car company you know they hate each other said, no 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 no. you don't understand you're a technician you know you don't understand the business anyway we flew over the two of us in the in the company jet to Munich and and BMW have an office on the um, right on the apron you just walk 50 yards from the jet into the office yeah and we were going over there to formalize project two with Dr. Reitzler yes so Karl Heinz was already there, and um, Ron, Dennis was, uh, Ron Dennis, Ron was with me. Um, Roger was already there, and we, we had coffee or something. And Wrightsler came in, shook our hands. You know, he was going to formally tell us we got the job. And Ron said, "Oh, before we start, I just have to tell you. You know, it doesn't affect the Gordon's road car Company or our, you know our road car Company that it's um, we just signed a five-year deal with Mercedes-Benz." And he said, "Goodbye." And, and he walked out and that was that was the end of my my so we were stuck so i had this business with 50 old people and no work so i came up with all sorts that of that must ideas. have been a
2: terrible time i mean given it, it what was you awful. thought after all the, after the f1
1: after all the equity that you built up we'd built up and all the brand yeah. strength and everything. Yeah. And uh, You must have been tempted just to leave yourself. Weren't I you? was, yeah, I mean, I was really dejected. You know? yeah. But I didn't want to let the team down. Yeah. You know? So we managed to find um, jobs for people within the group. We didn't have to make anybody redundant, but we went down to the lowest critical mass, which I think was about 25 people or so. And then to try and keep it going, I came up with all sorts of ideas. One was to do a Le prototype. For LMP2, mm-hmm. that you could sell, you know, the chassis, like people do now, of course. Yeah. And we got that designed. Uh, we did the we did the first two seater uh, Formula One car to take people for rides. Yeah. And I was trying to get things to keep us alive. And then, and then I said, right, well, if we're now lost BMW and we're wedded to um, Mercedes, let's approach them to do a supercar. So we designed what was called Project Five, and that was quite a nice little, um, nice-looking little thing. Uh, Rear mid-engine, we're using their AMG V8, um, two-seater, side by side. Yeah. And we did a big presentation, and Roland Crichton and I flew over to Mercedes to see the boss. Carbon tub on that. And that was. No, that was a mixture of aluminium. That was like the project two for BMW, carbon and aluminium Mm -hmm. mixture to keep the cost down. And uh, we presented and I heard nothing for three months. And then we got this message back from Mercedes saying, the good news is we want to do a supercar with you. The bad news is it's not project five it's this show car that we built for the vision slr, detroit vision SLR for yeah. the 99 detroit show yeah front engine you know uh gt car and that's how we got the slr program
2: and what are your memories of that program because i can remember pretty horrendous
1: yeah um it it the, the difference was with bmw we worked directly with M Sport, and our, as I recall, I think M Sport then was only about 180 people, yeah. and had one boss. Yeah. And so the the communication was Paul, Russia, and me. And you were like-minded individuals, full, yeah, both full on stop. the same song sheet. So we made no mistakes on the F1. You know, everything turned out just how we wanted it to. On the on the SLR, we got plugged into the belly of the mothership. Yes. And we had, uh, during the period of the programme, we had three different project managers from Mercedes. And it was just, decision-making and stuff was just, took forever, you know. And trying to get, trying to meet people that, for drawings for the front axle or the steering rack, or it was just a nightmare. And then there was also a little bit of an identity crisis because they wanted a sports car, to go up against Aston and Ferrari. Hmm. But the Vision SLR, the packaging, it was just done on an old SL platform, so yeah. the center of gravity was in completely the wrong place, the weight distribution was yeah. in completely the wrong place. The fuel tank was in the wrong place. I mean everything was in the wrong place. So it was basically trying to start all over again, keep the keep the shape and the aerodynamics were not good. So it was trying to make a sports car out of a concept car, which is never a good idea, yeah. and trying to keep it looking the same. And eventually we did, and, and you have to say it was probably a success because they made two and a half thousand cars. Yeah. And the thing, although it's not the car that I would like to drive, I'm very proud of the engineering, the way we built the carbon tubs, a yeah. robot bonded them, and we had a new way of infusing the resin from the inside out, and all sorts of clever stuff for manufacturing um some really was it
2: the first use of ceramic brakes on a road car uh
1: i'm not sure Must it was, it was certainly an early uh, brake by wire yeah um i'm not sure actually if, if it no, nor am
2: i doesn't oh. matter oh. okay let's have a, let's have another one i think we've, done, we've only got two to go haven't we
1: yes um so <laughs> we've had the, we've had the ones off the off the wall um Another one of my favourite cars of all time is the Renault Espace. Oh. I just love that thing. <laughs> I had, I had three 1984 original. Espace. 1984, yeah. I yeah. uh, had three of them over the years, including a, a Quadra, which they didn't make many of, which was four wheel drive. Yeah, I And it, it had a composite um, prop shaft.
2: Did it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah,
1: it was a, it was a, you know, taper weld. I think it was. Um, fiber winding uh uh composite prop shaft glass fiber prop shaft but that that thing was i mean you can debate it's this it's the funny old story isn't it who who was the first of this genre who was the first of this type of car yeah and everybody can debate that for me that was the first proper mpv yes before that we had in 54 we had the fiat Multipler. yes the Dante Gio Corsa car, mm-hmm. fantastic little three seats, six hundred CCs, and, the, or, and yeah. the seats tipped up, but they yeah. didn't move or yeah. anything. And it was three rows. And then the year before this, Chrysler did a the car- minivan, didn't they? caravan. caravan yes, but yeah. really, if you look at that, it, it, it had three rows of seats. It didn't. It didn't have the multi-position and the seats popping out and stuff. When the Renault spas arrived, it was brilliant for so many different reasons. As a car designer. I've always said car design, I'm not talking about styling, car design is packaging. Mm. The clever people, the Mini, yes. you know, the first Mini, um, the packaging and that was just mind-boggling. You know? um, and when the Espace came out, I just couldn't believe it. I just, I just thought the whole concept to do a steel space frame and then hot dip galvanise it, you know, um, that, that gave them 60% more torsional rigidity, just without the spot welds. Yeah. You know, or adding to the spot was, I should say, with a galvanizing like glue, mm. and then to have these bolt-on composite panels, and have something that was two point, no, I beg your pardon, four point two meters long, with three rows of seats. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. You yeah, know, six, six ninety-fifth percentile adults comfortable, and then the first row of seats swivel round, mm. and you made a table with the middle one. Yeah. You know, like the VW Caravelle does mm-hmm. now. And, and the seats popped out, you could have a van. You, it was just, I thought the whole design, and I even liked the styling because it was so f- futuristic mm-hmm. and box like in those days, you know. And, uh, and it only weighed 1,300 kilos. So the handling was fantastic. You know, it, vehicle dynamics for such a, a high box, um, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So we had three of them, we had them for years. <laughs> yes, yes, and I love, I love what I call milestone cars or the beginning of a new type of, of sector, if you like, yeah. in, in car design. You know, uh, front wheel, transverse front wheel drive, you know, the Mini and stuff like that. And uh, uh, another very clever car that my wife's still got, I cannot prize it out of her hands, is, and she's had three of those, is the Mercedes A Class. Yeah, uh, we had one for 12 years. I'm talking about the proper 8 Yeah, class, the original 8 Not, not the new thing. Which no, no, is no, just no. A, the
2: original 1997 uh, original, car or whatever. That is yeah. such a clever mm-hmm.
1: car. Such yeah. a clever car. The space yeah. inside it. Yeah. 3.7 metres, the long yeah. wheelbase one. Yeah, And the space inside it is mind-boggling. You know? And she's still... I cannot get it out of... <laughs> pry it out of her hands because there's nothing to replace it at the moment. Well, I've no. looked around. There's nothing.
2: No, you know? and, and and they canned it because they mm-hmm. couldn't spin... You know, one these days you have to have one platform and you have to make an SUV yeah, and a saloon and yeah. a that and mm. they couldn't do it with that with yeah. that package. They could only make that car. Mm. And so they could make that car and sell that car, but they couldn't make all the variants which made the programme profitable. That's, that's right, yeah. So they canned it. Yeah. yeah. So
1: the espace, yeah, it will definitely go down on my Lovely. My okay. List.
2: Yeah. Um so why did you leave McLaren
1: in the end? Do you just want to set up on your own? Uh, the McLaren automotive. Yes. Um, a few reasons. Yeah. I, I One thing I haven't mentioned is I'm always looking for a fresh challenge. And Formula One in the 70s and 80s gave you a fresh challenge Mm. almost every race. Yeah. Because the regulations were so wide open. Of course. You felt like you were designing a new car twice a year sort of thing, you know. And then we had engine changes, you know, from a a V8 to a flat 12 to Mm. a V12. Straightforward. straightforward straight yeah you know so it, it, that refreshed me, if you like, and every time we changed <coughs> an engine and we changed engine more than most other people, it was a fresh it was like a new job, but then, as I say, I got a bit jaundiced after you know 17 years and then eventually 20 years, and I was looking for a new challenge, and of course, doing the F1 hmm. was and then going racing with the F1 was yeah. a fantastic challenge, but that sort of had run its course a bit. And I was going to leave before the SLR, but I travelled to Stuttgart every week for several months to get that job. And once again, I felt a little bit, I would have felt a bit guilty leaving Ron and the team in the lurch and not seeing the design through. So I s- decided to stay for the four years it took to the SLR. But then I was determined I wanted a, a brand new challenge. And in that four-year period is when I dreamt up iStream. Yeah. And I took it to the, the board you know, the other the other shareholders, and I explained what it was, and, and I went, no, n- n- I don't think so, we're going to keep doing sports cars, you know, so... Um Not because it wasn't a, a very McLaren thing to do? No, or, it just probably sounded a bit boring, you know, making yeah. high-volume cars out yeah. of composite. Yeah. Anyway, so I eventually thought, right, new challenge, let me see if I can raise some capital and uh, develop and industrialise that process, you know, and that was fifteen years ago, and I walked into the building with six people once again, empty building, concrete floors, keep doing it yeah, um, six people yeah um, and we're now four hundred
2: wow, wow, and how many of those have come on since the the t fifty and the t thirty three have been probably about a hundred yeah mm. yeah, because although we're sort of aware of you and your presence you know in in terms of i mean you did the t v hmm which we still haven't seen five years after it, it was launched. Yeah. Um, but we probably best not get into that. Um <laughs> but you know it, it's I been, wish we would. Oh we can if you like.
1: No, no, I mean I wish they'd done it because it's yeah. a great little motor car. Well, wow. I only drove it once, but I drove it around the top gear track. Yeah. And uh I mean within two laps you didn't need a steering wheel. You know, it was a balanced just, just on the throttle, And we hadn't even started developing the chassis. That's yeah. just how we set the springs and dampers and ride yeah. heights up. You know, it's a great little moment.
2: Well, still, they still say they're going to do it. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We will see. Um, but what, what has been, for people who have not, other than the TV, not been sort of that aware of what you've been up to until the T-50, until 30, the T-33, what's been, what has
1: kept you going for all those Well, all it's those been years? our stream, yeah. really, because we... Um, we got so close. We did a couple of little demonstrator city cars, which were never for sale. They were to demonstrate. The T25. Stream, 25, and... Yeah. And then, and then Yamaha approached us. And Yamaha spent years um, with, with us developing iStream. And we, and we fully industrialized the process. We proved it could be done. We built over 60 chassis. We did all the crash tests. We did durability, corrosion. We did all the manufacturing studies for tolerances and, and quality control, everything they asked us to do, we did. And they were going to do a little electric um, city car, T26, mm-hmm. which still today, I think it's eight or nine years old, and still today when people see a photograph of it, they go, oh, can you buy one of those? It still looks fresh and good. It's 200 kilos lighter than the smart electric car. Wow. And it, was a, and it drove so nicely. So we had that and then they were going to do a little petrol sports car with a one litre um, three cylinder uh, forward engine and that was T40 and that was a fantastic even I say so myself fantastic <sighs> package. It was about the size of a Lotus Elise um, a little bit bigger maybe but it had full air con, massive luggage space in the front and the back mm. and uh all the creature comforts, you know, you could think of in a sports car, 840 kilos. And it could have sold and made really good money for uh, under 35 grand. And we were, we were doing those. We, we had a contract manufacturer set up to build them. And we got right up to pushing the button on production. And they had a top management change and decided they weren't doing four wheels. that was that. Well, that car would have now been in production for three years mm-hmm. and would be making a profit. And um, can you imagine an everyday usable Lotus Elise, 840 kilos, you know, it would have been just... Uh, already everybody that had seen it at work said, well, we'll have one, you know. The car part would have been full of T40s. It. Sure. And then we got very, very close um, with another major, one of the top six companies in the world. And once again, it was one person that put a stop to it. They were going to make a little city car. Mm. Um, electric and petrol city car, and then we got and even closer with really a big car company with the ox truck. Yes, and all three of them—it was nothing to do with stream All three of them were bosses, marketing usually going. What's that? Oh, that's just—it's it's a what? It's a wooden truck. That's just noise. So when one of these uh, things in which you've
2: invested so much time and creative energy mm-hmm. and everything uh, and you get to the last hurdle and then as you say a person comes up and just goes no that feel are are you quite sanguine about that can you be philosophical
1: or does it does it even now really no it really annoys me and hurts me it really does because i know the product was so good you know that little sports car you get people now writing into us saying oh you're only doing supercars but that's not our fault you know (laughs) i wanted to do an affordable sports car yeah and um and, and then, but now, what's changed now is we're not reliant on OEMs. So, one of the reasons, apart from celebrating fifty years, one of the reasons why we did GMA and started these cars is we're in control of our own destiny. So, what changed? What enabled you to become controller? Did you just decide that you that we just you had enough of OEM make, letting we, you down? We'd make our own supercar. Yeah. And then, of course, before you know where you are, you've got you're employing a hundred people, so you can't stop at one car. <laughs> um, and that's fine, because we make all those decisions. Yeah. But, but the other enabler, which has really kick-started iStream again, is, is electric vehicles and, and startups. So we don't have to wait for an OEM anymore. We've got people banging the door down at the moment who have the battery technology or the powertrain technology or even the electrical architecture and the electrical components, but they have no chassis technology. And that's iStream. And that's you. So we have people literally knocking the door down at the moment. And we're actually working on a couple of programs for for customer programs. And so we don't have, because if you think about it from the OEM's point of view, iStream is so disruptive from a technology point of view. It's nothing like Stamp Metal. And they have got a lot of money, of course, invested in Stamp Metal, but a lot of knowledge as well. So it's like trying to stop the oil tanker and turn it around, you know, with an OEM that's been building spot welded stamped metal cars for 40, 50, 60 years. Whereas now we've got these start up companies everywhere and doing a start up electric car without the complex and expensive ice powertrain, um, they're all over the place now. So people are all looking for a chassis technology. Yeah, which you have. Which we have. Let's, let's have your last car. The last car is um, something I had I had built very recently by a company called Alpha Holics down in. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, down in Bristol. Bristol, way. Yeah, the Banks brothers. Uh, yes, yeah, Max and Andrew, and um, they do such good work, you know. And they do this. Um, you, you've probably driven one this GTA R. Um, oh. GTA R. they yes. do. And it takes the 101 platform or whatever it is. So 105. I think, 105 but yeah. platform. Yeah, yeah, 105 platform. And they, and they have all their own bits, you know. And they put a relatively modern, I think it's 80s, all-aluminium 2.1 uh, twin cam in it. Yeah. And, um, and they just do great work. And I didn't know uh, them at all. Somebody told me about Alphaholics. And I've never met Max. And a car I've always loved the look of mm. was the Zagato Junior. Yes. Um, which actually, when it came out, it was a real Marmite car. You know, it really split opinion amongst the Alphistas because everybody had been used to the Bertone and Pininfarina, lovely rounded Sprint's GTs. And suddenly this, I think Ecole Spada did the design. Ecole Spada, yes, he did, yeah. And suddenly you get this mad angular wedge thing with a Perspex front end and offset slots and... All sorts of oh, wet, looked amazing. wacky, and and I fell into the camp of love yeah. But a lot of people hated it. You know? Yeah, it was exactly the same with Ferrari when they went from Pininfarina to Bertone. He came out with the GT4. GT4. Yeah. it split people down the middle. Yeah. I loved it again, and I've got one. Yeah, I, I love the shape. Yeah, but a lot of Ferrari people hated it and didn't buy it. Didn't help the fact that it had a Dino badge on as well. I think, but in the early days, the, yeah. yeah, they they didn't they didn't like it. So I phoned Alphaholics and Max is in California, so they give me Max's mobile number. And I phoned Max, I don't know Max at this point. And I'm thinking, I wonder if he's the hate or the or the love for fifty percent, you know, on the on the junior shape. So I phoned him and I said, Max, I'm really interested in one of your GTARs but but I, I don't want it on that chassis, I want it on it. Zagato Junior. Wow. And there was silence. And I thought, oh, he's probably one of the, yeah. one of the, the, the he's on the 50% that didn't like yeah. it. And and then he came back and he said, I love that car. I've always wanted to do one of our, you know, GTRs. He said, it's the same platform underneath, which I, yeah, didn't, it is. I yeah. didn't know. And, uh, and that was the beginning of the journey. So he's done it. Uh, two years later, about two years ago, I get the car and it's, Fantastic. And of course, because with Alphaholics, you can work with them on the spec. Mm. So we did some quite different things. I wanted it to be everyday usable so I could run it up and into winter a little bit. Yeah. So it's got proper heater and air con and yeah. electric windows and all that sort of stuff, heated seats. Um, but, and, I ch- and I took the opportunity, we worked together to change the few things I didn't like on the styling. And, and Max agreed, and he pointed some of them out, in fact. And, you know, for example, the door handles were a big square black and chrome Fiat item yeah. stuck straight in front of the, in the middle of the door panel. You know, so, so they've taken those out because we had to do the, the body shelter. The, uh, uh, they had to lower the four five inches to get me in <laughs> and, and move the main beam back six inches behind me to get my leg room. Yeah. It would never fit in one, a normal one. And uh, so together we worked on the sort of styling, and they they put these little Ferrari Dino door handles on the top, and then the fuel filler was a great big square racetrack in the side, the flank, the rear wing. Uh, so we got rid of that. We put a little aluminium fuel filler in the middle of the boot at the back, and it had about a I don't know an inch wide rain gutter with a trim strip on it. Got rid of all those. And uh, and then the final thing was the rear bumper, the only bit I never liked. It had this black and chrome rubber sort of folded rear bumper, so they actually cut that off and made a brand new rear bumper, which is just painted. And I picked this sort of green mamba, bright green, you know? and it looks it looks fantastic. But it drives. I can't get out of the thing, you know. I've already put two and a half thousand miles <laughs> on it, you know, and I've done a couple of track days with it. Yeah. But it's just, it's my sort of car. It looks great. It's a tiny footprint, but I'm ergonomically comfortable, which mm-hmm. is unusual. All my other little Italian cars got the usual ergonomic issues, you know, yeah. for somebody like you. Long arms, short legs, all that, yeah. So it's, you know, spacer, smaller wheels, spacer, take the seats off the runners, bolt it to the floor. Yeah. Take the rubber, rubbers off the pedals. You know. <laughs> um, whereas this, I'm ergonomically, it's perfect. Yeah. And and the engine's gorgeous. It revs. It sounds wonderful, and uh, and it looks great too. You know, and I've I've done a couple of rallies in it already, and so that's that's a, that's definitely my brilliant. Okay, so before
2: we before we wind this up, um, how does Gordon Murray do an electric sports car? Because I've, I've asked so many people how you do an electric sports car, and I haven't really heard. A
1: convincing no. answer how do you you know I think at, with the current battery technology and the current you know power density which mm-hmm. is rubbish of yeah. um, modern batteries uh, current batteries I beg your pardon um, I think the only way an electric sports car works is not to try and do a supercar because you just it's it's a bad spiral you know yeah. you need the power <laughs> you need a bigger motor, you need a bigger battery. And before you, you know where you are, you've got, you've got a two-ton car, car yeah. which can't be a sports car, in yeah. my opinion. So I think if you want to do an electric sports car, you, do, you, you would take Yamaha's T40 and you would you would say, I only need 150-mile range because I'm just going out for some fun. Because it's a recreational car. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've got my everyday electric car or petrol or whatever you're driving. Yeah. This is to have some fun. Mm. But I want an electric sports car. And you do something that weighs maybe 1,100 kilos, that's still light enough for the vehicle dynamics to be good. Yeah. And you have a 150-mile range, you know, or 120-mile range to keep the battery as small as possible. Yeah. And, uh, and if you haven't it. got a gearbox, you haven't got that sound. No. There's all sorts of stuff you're not going to have, and uh, that doesn't uh, seem to be a... I'm, I'm not saying I would do that, but yeah. if you ask me how you would do an electric yeah. sports car, yeah. at, at, with the current battery technology, I wouldn't even attempt to do a supercar. I would do I would do a lightweight, fun MX-5 type, or even smaller, you know. Brilliant. Okay. Um,
2: We're going to wrap it up now. So now is your time to tell me what car you would take your last blast in, where you'd do it, and if anyone, Mm.
1: who'd be with you when you did. Okay, well, that has to be T50. Yeah. It's just a no-brainer. If the T50 was rubbish everywhere else but the sound of the engine... <laughs> it would still do It would still do it for me. <laughs> if it didn't handle, yeah. it, it didn't go around corners, yeah. you know, it had bad traction, uh but it had that engine sounding like that and revving like that. Yeah. That would be it. I mean, I just can't I can't see, I might be wrong, but I can't see anybody now with electric cars coming on and everything doing another little 4 liter V12. I, yeah. I don't think so anyway. Yeah. And if they do, they'll have to go to Cosworth because only Cosworth can do one that revs to 12,000 <laughs> <laughs> so it would have to be 50 and also it's not just the engine it's sitting in the middle you know and it definitely would be on my own yeah and it would probably be around uh where my house is up in the Highlands in Scotland brilliant
2: um Gordon Murray thank you very much indeed for coming on the last Blast podcast
1: thank you it's been a pleasure brilliant